Hi folks, this is Christian Haynes from Gamers with Glasses, and I am joined today by Jamie Woodcock. Hi, it's great to be back. And Jamie Woodcock, uh, as folks might remember from the first episode of our spoiler cast of Disco Elysium, is a senior lecturer at the Open University and a researcher based in London. He's the author of The Fight Against Platform Capitalism and Marx at the Arcade. And we're really happy to have Jamie here to discuss uh, Disco Elysium and not just because we are dealing with a game that could arguably be called Marxist and we've got uh, you know one of our resident Marxists on hand, but also just because of Jamie's interest in working and work culture. But why don't we start off today's episode with a little bit about where we are at in the game. So I think Jamie and I are roughly at the same point, which is we've opened up the coast, the kind of second region of the game. We've went inside the church, we've explored some new buildings. Jamie, how would you describe where you're at in the game? I think um, in a in a confusing moment is where I, I, I feel like I was up to. So having got the gun back, having explored some some new areas, and I think I mean, I guess also kind of getting to the point where the build of the character is feeling a bit clearer, right? Um, because you've, you know, you've accumulated enough points to to spend some of them on things. So I think, yeah, starting to make sense of the environment a bit more. And well, I was going to say making sense of some of the characters, but some of them are harder to make sense of than others, right? Um, so yeah, I think that's that's kind of kind of where we're up to. You know, having played through some of the stuff with the union, uh, figured out some of the case i guess um but then you know reaching this point of you know what what kind of comes next really excellent excellent uh let's talk about those character builds what do you tell us a little bit about your character build jamie like you know what are what are your characters your version of our detectives aspirations joys pains yeah that's a good question so i mean i think so i've min maxed on a few things um and you know, one of them after the discussion we had about uh, about playing a cop last time, um, I, I, I've gone for a negative authority build. Uh, so I think he's down to like minus one, minus two authority. So you know, not able to flash the cop badge and and, and kind of get away with things. Um, but yeah, what are, so what, I, I, I've partly because of my enjoyment of it, put a dumped a whole load of points into Inland Empire. Um, because I think the dialogue choices you get are kind of, you never really know what you're going to get, right? So it kind of- the same thing, yeah. Yeah, it kind of adds a bit of, yeah, spices things up a little bit. Um, when I first started off, I was kind of keen on uh, on empathy of thinking, you know, um, this may be a cop, but, you know, he's going to go around and he's going to figure out what motivates people and, you know, be able to talk you know, talk to people in the union and understand the strike and so on. I'm left wondering whether empathy was such a, a kind of great, great choice because it, you know, it has helped in some ways to 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 kind of talk to people and get through stuff. Um, and I guess following on from the discussion we had last time, uh, some more into shivers uh, to kind of you know, again, I think a lot of the the options that pop up when you've you've put points into shivers are. Uh, are definitely interesting. This, this has meant to get through some of the checks. Uh, the character builders involve taking more drugs. Um, you know, there's been a, a slide back to uh, to to dependency for my character. I think. 
Yeah, for um, folks that maybe uh, haven't explored that aspect of the game yet, the way drugs work in the game, right, is you take the drugs and they raise uh, your skill caps. And so you can drop points into them, those skills that maybe you don't have a very high attribute rating in, uh, and those points that you drop in will stay permanent even as the drug effects wear off. Uh, you know, but beware of a hangover um, or of that horrible feeling you get after a night of doing speed or something. Uh, so, yeah. So you, you've been doing drugs and dropping points in the shivers. Yeah, um, I, because I didn't, when I started the game, I had no real understanding of what the initial attributes would mean. So I think mm -hmm. I just went even on all of them, which does then limit where you can put points, right? So, you know, that was when the first cigarettes started getting smoked to kind of, yeah, raise the skill cap there. So, you know, I kind of, uh, yeah, I think there's been a lot of ex experimentation, both in the attributes and the, and the drug taking, right? <laughs> I mean, that is one of the strengths and weaknesses of the game, right? At the same time, weirdly, is that it doesn't have the same stats as like a D&D based role playing game or your standard fantasy role playing game where you know roughly what strength or even dexterity is going to do. Dexterity is your most anomalous one often in a game, or maybe the luck rating, whenever there's a luck rating in a game, which I always hate, uh, because I never know what it does. Uh, but this game, you don't have any of those standard ones, except maybe the physical one, and even that doesn't do what you necessarily would expect it to do, or it includes things you wouldn't think it would. No, and I also think I, I kind of quite like that some of them, there aren't clear boundaries around them, right? Like, I don't know, I can't remember what the coolness one is called composure i think but isn't there also savoir faire yes so you know there's a certain like bleeding between the categories right which when i was looking at them i kind of thought well you know maybe that one sounds cool i'll put some points into that without you know <laughs> really thinking it through maybe um and i guess that's what's interesting about the game right is like the more you put points into something the more often essentially the dialogue choices come up and then if you enjoy those ones, you know, there's a kind of pull to be like, you know, the Inland Empire stuff is cool. I'll drop some more points into that to see kind of where that where that takes me. So I, in a way, I kind of feel like it's more narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Than affecting the gameplay as such. I mean, I think that's actually the brilliant thing that the game is that it manages to integrate what you're right, I think, is a primarily sort of narrative set of skills right you're going to see different conversation trees open up different conversation op and options open up and they sometimes have gameplay effects right uh they sometimes will allow you to get past uh or get into a place get past a character into a place uh and they sometimes won't and you don't necessarily know when that's going to be the case and some i think are more useful for that than others i think savoir faire has almost a kind of mechanical quality to it where it not only opens up conversation, but also enables you to maybe like Jimmy open doors and things like that, or have a better chance to do that. Uh, so there's like a technical component as well. Uh, I think that's that one. But a lot of them like Inland Empire is never going to do something like that for you. You're just gonna get, you know, essentially like Lynchian style, you know, ruminations reminiscent of Dale Cooper uh, from, you know, Twin Peaks and, you but know, I think that's great. I, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that I feel like I've perhaps missed out on is 
So I never used the flashlight at all so far. Mm. I, I used it once when you go into the the building with all the buzzers uh, that you kind of get into through the through the bookshop. And I thought, oh no, I have a flashlight. I haven't used this at all. And then found the there's a cache of revolutionary weapons that you can kind of stumble across. And then I thought to myself, have I missed the whole chunk of you know, other there have been plenty of dark rooms that I've gone through, right? Um, and so I think, yeah, even thinking about the attributes and the skills, there are still some mechanical things that, yeah, that that are worth thinking through and and figuring out, right? Because none of those stats would have, I assume, helped me find the revolutionary weapons cache, which, given my playthrough, was quite important to find, right? Right, and 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 I do think there are there are things that you know you're not going to miss if you play through the game. Uh, but there are definitely some some rooms, some areas of the game that you could really overlook. Uh, there's a room, I remember, in the hotel that you could never go into, for example, and still play through the game. There's, uh, you know, I think both of us, I want to say both of us have gone to Juno's uh, little hideaway uh, behind the hotel. Uh, you could play through the game without ever going into that. Uh, so there are these areas, and some of them do require skill checks to get into. And I do think that there are some of these significant kind of build orientations that do matter. I mean, so my build right now is I, you know, I played my first playthrough of this game. I did kind of a dreamy socialist kind of communar. Uh, and this time around, I'm trying to be a kind of like neoliberal ne'er-do-well, but not, not like a ne'er-do-well, kind of like a neoliberal bumbling idiot, I suppose, uh, except now that I've also leaned into being an art critic. So I imagine myself as the kind of like art critic that's, you know, happy uh, how, like to sort of hobnob with rich people that are on the boards of museums. That's kind of what I imagine myself as. That's often you know, dining on the dime of, uh, you know, rich folks that collect art uh, and is perfectly happy saying, yes, sure, let's kick out the poor people uh, and put in another art gallery. Why not? Gentrification's great. It brings more beauty into the world. But that's how I'm playing. Uh, but I have a build now that because of this, I have these attributes that give me money for various kind of conversation trees. And I actually have a lot of money now because I get a buck for every time the conceptual conversation piece comes up and every time uh i click on something that's vaguely capitalist i get a dollar or something so i think i have just about scraped enough money together for cigarettes in a room each day <laughs> uh and it's been like you know cutting cutting pretty fine i think uh, i mean we talked about this last time so i i tried to go the full communist build but somehow I've ended up with one fascist point and I have like no idea where this has come from. So it was, it was pretty clean so far, but there, there's one, I, I can't think what conversation choice triggered that, but somewhere I've, I've not quite min-maxed the, <laughs> that right, as effectively. You didn't, you didn't go into the union's headquarters through Measurehead, right? You went through the back door. So yes, yeah, so I wonder where you did get that point picked up. I Yeah. I, I feel like maybe I, yeah, who knows? You know, pushed one conversation point to see where it would go without thinking it through. Uh, but yeah, so almost entirely communist, but with one one uh, black mark of, of, of fascism on the record. Politics is a slippery game. 
too slippery. Uh, yeah, so it's funny. I mean, we're doing very different character builds. I imagine we've seen some conversations that are similar, but I imagine we've seen a lot of different conversation elements, although I think probably both of us are getting a lot of the same Inland Empire pieces. Uh, I'm curious, what do you think of, you know, part of what happens when you get to day three of the game is you open up a new significant chunk of the geography, the coastal region of the game. And I'm curious what you think of the coastal region so far. So I think I did this the wrong way around. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we will have to to talk about is the uh, the communist side quest, because I've, I've enjoyed that immensely um, for various reasons. But I think I, I kind of accidentally went into the coastal region on the the phasmid. The I can't remember the how they have a, a term for it, but the imaginary insects hunting quest because the I just thought quest. The, the cryptid quest because I just got totally distracted by this and wanted to know where this was going, um, and then ended up wandering around it thinking I probably shouldn't. Should I be here yet? You know, well, you know, I'll explore and see what happens. And then, of course, I had to come back to it kind of point and click style once you've, you know, you realize what you're actually looking for in uh, in that chunk. And I think, what did I make of it? I wasn't expecting there to be another region. Um, and I guess going into it without the objective of what you're meant to be doing there meant it was I spent a lot more time just exploring it and talking to people and 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 kind of taking it in and trying to figure out what was happening there. Um but I I liked what it added to the world building. You know, the kind of you know, there are parts of the the UK that used to have fishing industries that it kind of brings memories back to, right? Of kind of, you know, these uh, dilapidated post-fishing town. Um and I thought it was a, a nice addition to the world building, right? No, I, I, I agree because, you know, we see, you know, Revachol is this post-revolutionary city, right? And you see the ruins of the attempt of the revolution. Uh, they're in a time period called the 50s in the game, uh, which is not our 50s. Uh, it's a, you know, this is a separate universe or world. And, you know, things seem a lot more glum, politically speaking, a lot more melancholy, uh, and I don't want to say that the coastal region is hopeful, but it does have the quality of a kind of autonomous zone where people are not organized by state power. They're also kind of going nowhere and they're aging, right? They're literally aging. The last children, you know, are there. The population of that area has dwindled down to just a couple of families and you know, some drunks who sit around and reminisce about better times. Uh, and that's about it. So it's kind of like a dying region, but also weirdly, there's a kind of hope, I suppose, might not be the right word, but there's something there that's different. But it, it also has, you know, it has the kind of post-fishing industry vibe, but it also has a kind of post-industrial, you know, it has the, I can't remember exactly what they they call it, but the kind of, radio computer factory so there's this kind of sense of like I, yeah i think you're right there's a, that kind of you're outside of the formal kind of zone of control of of capital and to some extent the state right but there's also nothing really for people to to do there you know some one person is, is you know they're trying to break into a church to to set up a a, a nightclub and someone's recording ice cracks 
you know, there's a kind of like, you know, it feels a bit like under the under the overpass, right? It's like things yeah. are happening in the cracks of whatever is happening more widely in Rebishol, I guess. So one of the analogies that came to mind for me, and this is partially based on personal experience, uh, a long summer uh, spent living in Berlin um, with lots of very late nights into early mornings. Uh, but when they're making the church into the club, I couldn't help but think of East Berlin after the wall falls and just the way in which these factories and warehouses get renovated and, you know, famously uh, the Club Berghain. Um you know, which was an old warehouse turned into one of the most famous electronic music scenes in the world still, I believe. Uh, and I remember going there and I happened to have a friend who was writing an ethnography uh, of the club seat in Berlin, which if you're going to write an ethnography and you want to have fun while doing it, make it of a club scene, just saying. Uh, and, you know, so he got us to the front of the line immediately and you go in and, you know, they might search you, but they only take the weapons. You're allowed to keep your drugs and things like that. And, you know, but I got that feeling from the game of this like former socialist place that was still figuring out what to do that seemed to be in a kind of limbo but that was also kind of refunctioning things for new purposes. And yeah, so like this church that was a church of a certain like version of humanism that also seemed to be aligned with a version of imperialism at a certain point uh, is getting turned into a factory and a place for computer experimentation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a nice way to, yeah, I think that's a nice way to put it. Um, and it, yeah, it definitely, you know, but it also it's also quite depressing too, right? You know, you have the guy who, you know, is taking the books back to the library and wanders off to get hammered on the pier and falls and dies and no one spots him. So yeah. there's there's also this kind of like, you know, there's there's hope and opportunity and there's also like kind of a crushing depression of like you might be autonomous, but you know, that comes with, you know, doesn't doesn't just open up hope and, and possibility right um yeah not to to lower the the the, the tone on this uh, the autonomous zone of the of, of the seafront right no i think that's right though i think this is a game about honestly about defeat about political defeat and historical defeat but it's not necessarily defeatist right that would be a very i think there's a distinction there and you know i think we can maybe ask the question of whether or not it manages to like hold those that space open of like acknowledging failure without becoming defeatist uh i think it does but i think it's something we should talk about in our last episode um it's yeah. a fine line um i mean i also you know can't help but feel like the harbinger of doom in that region after getting uh, the signed letters for the union boss, um, which, you know, my role playing through it was, you know, the union is going to deliver something, this is going to be good. And then, you know, you go and get the signatures and it's pretty clear that, you know, it's not going to be good for the inhabitants, right? No. Um, so I did I did feel a bit of, you know, a pang of uh, of guilt for, for having... Having done that, I, I, I mean, I guess with the neoliberal playthrough, you forged the signatures and, you know, bulldozed your way through, right? <laughs> so the forging the signatures is actually the most, like, positive outcome in a way for them. 
Because if you forge the signatures, it turns out that legally it doesn't hold up and actually the whole deal falls through, if I'm remembering correctly, which I did in okay. my first playthrough. This time, no, I'm getting their signatures and we're going full throttle uh, with redevelopment. Um, I went know, a bit I, centralist, you know, I was like, no, yeah. let's believe, you know, let's, we've got to back the union boss with this decision, you know. Right. No, but the, I mean, the funny thing is, right, like there's a way in which you could say, like, actually, like the union's going to raise wages and this is part in parcel of a program to like lift a lot of boats if not yeah. all of them right and may maybe it is the kind of like lesson there is precisely like even when you pick the good option there's going to be pain there's going to be hurt right there's going to be some kind of cost so that's its own sort of historical perspective for better or worse but i mean this is maybe a good time to bring up that uh the communist subplot or subquest side quest that uh, you've been playing through, uh, which I think I played through in my first playthrough, I think, uh, but it's been a while. So why don't you tell us about it? So, I mean, it, it, it has a quite a hard surrealist angle to it, right? You know, you have one of these internal monologues and, you know, you're kind of talking about whether you're really a communist, whether you really want to do it. And, you know, if you kind of follow through on it, you, you get offered this task, which is to to go and smell out communists. Um, that you know, this is this is how you can tell who your real comrades will be. And it kind of triggers this weird thing of you kind of walk past people, and then you get the the internal monologue of "I can smell a communist." You know, now you've got to try and chat to them. But I mean, the people that you expect are, you know, the people who smell smell communist i guess you could say but you then have this kind of weird like awkward you're a cop and you're trying to tell people you're their comrade and people don't really believe you and you have this whole kind of series of awkward encounters with people which i quite enjoyed in a way um because it kind of reminded me of what we were talking about last time the the tension of technically you're a cop right you know you may not realize it at first but you you know you have the badge and you know, you recover the gun and so on. But, I mean, I quite liked it partly because of the tongue-in-cheek stuff, um, which is, you know, there's there's some phrase that, like, you know, you've built 0.0001% of communism, and, like, if you can find another person, you can build 0.0002 of communism. There's all these kind of nice moments. And, like, you know, your internal monologue says you should go and pick an argument with a communist, and you say, no, no, you know, why would I argue with them he's like no no this is the central task of communists is to like find other communists and disagree with them so there's like a number of nice kind of tongue-in-cheek jokes that you know many of us on the left can kind of sigh and relate to right, right. um but i i guess the combination which i haven't quite figured out because uh, i think my character's too dumb um and failed some skill checks on on being allowed into the reading group <laughs> um so you know you kind of eventually find your way into this this secret reading group and it's like the worst bits of you know academic student lefties right of like they kind of quiz you on all this high theory high mazovian theory and niche debates around inframaterialism and so on and i kind of you know i was thinking back to like meetings i've been to and just thinking Oh my God, you know, <laughs> these are this is exactly not what you should be doing, right? Um, and yeah, I think I, my character is both too dumb and didn't have enough composure to blag his way into the reading group. And he's like shown up to be, you know, 
not well read enough and so he's not been allowed into the reading group and part of me is like should I now like you know beef up on the points to try and see where this goes through but also the two communist characters that's just so unappealing um <laughs> you know they're like so awful they're like yeah uh entirely kind of they want to argue about niche points of theory um but also you know if this is the communist playthrough i've got to yeah got to get my way into the reading group right it is funny because I, I do feel like it reproduces some of the experience of doing organizing work, right? Like union organizing work of like two twofold, right? One, you're going to have awkward conversations with people. That's part of the work of organizing actually is having those awkward conversations that you try to steer in a specific direction. And often, you know, they take longer than you wish they would and are more uncomfortable than you wish they were. And then the other part is, right, sometimes you organize alongside people that are to be honest right and like maybe they're asses that are doing good work but they are asses and you know maybe you're the ass too i don't know not you specifically Jamie. <laughs> you know the proverbial the, the the generic you um but you know you sometimes have to be in bed with folks you don't always like and that's just part of it right and part of it is acknowledging that this is more than just any one individual and you have to kind of just work through these things and i think it's interesting because my initial sort of thought was, you know, maybe one of the limits of the game is that just based on the genre of the computer role-playing game and the kind of structure of a series of like well-defined non-player characters, NPCs, you're not getting that collective or like larger social dimension sometimes. But on the other hand, you are getting that aspect, that kind of like micro or like local aspect of the collective has to be built through conversations that are contentious or awkward or clumsy. Uh, and that you have to sometimes just be patient with. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is something that, you know, I've talked with people about and argued with people about of, you know, doing politics in games is a really difficult thing to get right. Um, because, you know, games are, I mean, this is a truism, but I'm going to say it anyway, but games are an individual pursuit, you know, uh, at least a game like this is an individual pursuit, right? You're seeing, you're the protagonist, you're you're going out into the world, you're you're the one with agency, right? Um, and that's a challenge to think about collective agency. Um, and I, I don't know, in a sense, what I quite liked about it is that, you know, there are these communists out there, you don't know who they are, will they accept you? You know, can you organize with them? Is it kind of, I thought it was a kind of a nice sense that there's other stuff politically happening. You know, there are the factions in the union, there are different, you know, there's a kind of sense that there's politics out there, but the what you're looking for, you're not necessarily just going to find, right? You know, I was hoping for like, you know, the the workerist Mazovian sect to appear and instead, you know, it's these two communist students building match matchbox constructions in this kind of janky upstairs flat that, you know, it looks like it's falling apart and so on. Is You know, I think there's something kind of, you can't argue with them or try and do something else. You know, you're kind of dealing with politics, how it appears, which I think you're right. Like the real experience of politics is often much closer to that, right? Yeah, for better or worse. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things you sort of touched on there that maybe will help us bring in, you know, another topic is the way in which you always get the sense in this game 
on the one hand, you're talking to like these distinct individuals, these distinct characters in these distinct places, but they always manage to gesture towards a larger world in a way that I do feel like speaks to this game's origin. There's a tabletop role-playing game with a source book behind it, right? Where you could go like, actually, there are these other islands and cities that I kind of want to visit, right? Uh I kind of want to see where Measurehead is from, where apparently the more superior version of the human species exists, uh, according to Measurehead. Uh, you know, I kind of want to see where these ships that, you know, bombarded the communist revolution uh, came from. And I want to learn more about the pale, this kind of, I, if I understand it correctly, it's essentially kind of like the equivalent of the ocean that connects the different places, but it also will make you psychotic or something or too much exposure to the pale will drive you mad. Uh, so there is this way in which you get the sense of a larger world. And even you start seeing that in the church, right? You see an alternative history of computing uh, in which radio computers uh, seem to take the place of, you know, the post vacuum uh, computer that uses tapes. Uh, so that I think that's probably roughly the 70s, uh, late 60s and 70s moment of computer history in our own kind of universe. Uh, but there's also that strange silence, the void in the church. Uh, but yeah, what's your experience there? I, I mean, I think I think that's what I find so appealing about the game, right? Is that there is, you know, often world building is the things that are necessary for the story are mapped out. And they're not often based in in a sense that feels like they've developed organically, right? Um, and I think, you know, it's no surprise to hear that, you know, the developers have talked about the influence of, of Marx and Engels in, in various ways, right? Is there is a kind of, I mean, not uncomplicated, but like a sense of a historical materialist development of the world, right? There is, you know, a sense of, of how production has impacted on the city, how those changes have come about. But there's also like a really kind of, I, I, I like the unnecessary details, like why I add the radio computer stuff. Um, it's kind of just a bizarre alternative history that adds some flavor to the game. And, you know, thinking up the different sects of Mazovian thought, you know, the break, the splits and the breakaways is there's a kind of, it feels much more like somebody who's looked at our world and the contradictions and the strange political disjunctures and, and all these things and thought, let's map that, that sense of a broader, richer history, which I think you're right. Like the tabletop influence is there, right? That there's constantly other stuff happening and it's not, you read a book and they, you know, like the kind of Morrowind, Elder Scrolls style history of there were these kings and you read a small book about this kind of more ancient history. There's like a real sense of tension and contradiction in the world today, which I I think is, it gives it, yeah, it gives it that kind of, there are points where you want to poke around and find out more, right? You, you know, you want to talk yeah. to people and go through those arguments and figure out, you know, where it's kind of come from. I mean, that's a great point, right? Because when we think world building so often in the context of games, uh, one of the words that will often come to mind is something like escape or escapism. And that's not the case here, right? Like paradoxically, they've somehow managed to make 
an alternative world that, yes, resembles ours, but it's also quite different in which, you know, strange creatures presumably exist, uh, you know, it has a very different political history, uh, but also, you know, there is a kind of psychosis-inducing atmosphere or ocean that connects continents. Uh, there are some differences, but you don't feel like you're escaping from anything. If, if anything, it's ratcheting up or intensifying contradictions that are present in our own sort of social and political conditions that we're living in now, right? I mean, I was in Baltimore uh, just a couple days ago uh, for the first time, actually. And of course, the area that we were in was precisely the area that was redeveloped uh, and gentrified essentially that they discussed in season two of The Wire. And I, and I, I know I should be punished for uh, referencing Baltimore by way of The Wire. I'm sure it's something people from Baltimore are more than a little tired of, but it, but I couldn't help but thinking of it, you know? I couldn't help but think of the fact that like, yeah, this is, this is a geography that has been renovated by capital. And, you know, you see the same thing actually happening in Revachol, in that place, and you see a battle over what that city is going to look like. Uh, and I'm not sure if, you know, either side wins in that battle, actually, right? Or, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's interesting, right? Because, you know, I think it's rare, like, world building is often the like, these kingdoms fought these kingdoms, this king came to power this queen came to you know there's often that kind of like the elite history that leads you up to the moment of where you are right particularly in games that have like a political setting i mean i'm sure i'm brushing over you know many amazing games right but there's a kind of there are a couple of moments that i really appreciated around the the tower block in the north of the main area where you go in and this is kind of if you discuss with some people, it was originally like apartments for the elite that then become dilapidated and then poorer residents move in and there's a kind of, you know, uh, they get it split up into smaller rooms for working class tenants. And then you can have this encounter with an estate agent who, you know, is talking about the potential of this area and getting new people in and it's got million dollar views, but, you know, all the rooms are too small because working class tenants have been there and they've split them up into tiny parts. And it made me think a lot about, you know, the neighborhood that I live in, for example, of those kind of waves of gentrification of, you know, of redlining apartments, or, you know, the, all these kind of dynamics, which you can unpick if you want to in this game and have some of those conversations or you could miss, right. You know, you don't have to, to go into that, but there's, you know, some interesting themes that you don't, you know, there are not many other games that talk about gentrification, right? Um, you know, The Sims obviously does, but not in a direct way. Um, no, in fact, the only game I can think of off the top of my head that does so in a sort of interesting way, and I'm sure I'm missing others, uh, is that little game, uh, Donut County, sort of inspired by uh, Kanamasi Damarasi, uh, um, in which you control a hole and swallow up areas, but it, you know there's these anthropomorphic animal characters, and it turns out like a raccoon is helping gentrify or something, uh, as raccoons are wont to do, I suppose. Um, but 
Yeah, no, it, it is interesting what this game is able to turn into gameplay scenarios, essentially, right? And some of that is just because the gameplay is reduced to conversation, which opens up, you know, in the same way that a tabletop, uh, you know, role-playing game can open up a lot of different possibilities through conversation. Uh, and likewise, because they don't feel the need to represent everything in a visual form, they don't feel the need to represent anything beyond the text box. And so that actually does open up a lot of possibilities or represents something like gentrification, which, you know, how do you actually visualize gentrification? I mean, you could, I can imagine some way, I suppose, of doing like a, you know, uh, what is that? Not slow motion, but, uh, you know, capturing over time the changing, you know, qualities of a block in a city, but it's not easy to visualize it. Uh, and so you capture these processes, these social processes through conversation here. I think that's right. But I, I do also think there is, you know, I felt particularly in that tower block in the north, when you go into it, it has the feeling, and, you know, maybe this is just me bringing my own uh, thoughts about these things into it but like it feels like a building that's been artificially carved into smaller units right do you have to do a kind of awkward walk around to get to the other side because they've put in a room where it should have been part of another flat or you know the, like it feels awkward and enclosed and you know it kind of made me think a little bit about how some other recent games that have should have had a political commentary just haven't right so i mean it made me think a bit about cyber, the cyberpunk game of a game that attempts to do a huge amount of world building and story just through putting neon signs and apartment blocks up right but then has no real political discussion or you know you can't talk to people about you know if you kind of imagine if they made a, a cyberpunk game as the follow-up to to disco elysium like you know what kind of discussions you would have uh, you know how you would deal with politics would be so different to to cyberpunk 2077 which you know you end up shooting people for the cops as a side mission that you can't avoid and you know there's no real you know the politic the critique is not in that game right well i mean the irony is that the critique is in cyberpunk 2077 but it's so perfunctory right it's like some corporate satire, satire of corporations. And it's like a mission where you can blow up uh, pieces of a, you know, corporate headquarters. And, you know, you and Keanu Reeves can sort of gun things down with a machine gun and that's the revolution, right? The revolution will be televised and it will also involve lots of machine guns and, you know, smart rifles or whatever they're called. Uh, but it, But it's, you know, it, it feels just like you're playing any shooter at that point right like and if you know it basically turns the revolution into a shooting gallery and here you don't get the revolution and yet it's somehow much more political the revolution is in the past you can't bring it about uh sorry to spoil it you know this game is not going to end with some glorious revolution i i don't think that's giving away too much i don't think you're surprised uh but you still get political struggle and political conflict uh, and you get the sense of it. And you're right. I think it's built into geography. I think it's built there into the really wonderful art, which is somehow both drab and colorful at the same time. Right? I don't like, quite know it, how you achieve that. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I feel like there's almost like a watercolor aesthetic that's involved. And I don't, I actually don't know how the art was worked up. I do know that there was a artistic designer who was very, had a like centralized vision and then worked with others to implement it. But I, I don't know exactly what his process was. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, but I think, you know, I think, it, it, you know, it's clear that there is an, an overarching artistic vision, which, you know, again, not to just bash cyberpunk again, is not just putting neon signs everywhere, right? Like, right. but, you know, I, I think you're right, is I think, you know, I, I've tried to make a distinction elsewhere, which I don't know how useful it is, but to talk about, like, big P political games, like games that tell you they're about politics, and actual games with politics or kind of small p political games and i feel like the game is riven with small p politics mm -hmm. right like the interpersonal politics the politics of the city the the unexpected bits the yeah the kind of histories of defeat and you know that uh, i guess you know in many games and i think your point about mowing down people in cyberpunk is a kind of an important one there in a sense of like you know it's not a power this game is not a power fantasy right like actually it's a mess like it's a total mess like you i mean the moment where i found the the car in the ice i just thought you've got to be kidding me like what have i done now like yeah what an idiot you know who do i have to apologize to that real sense of like you are this hungover wreck yeah. trying to make sense of the world but the world is hungover too right you know there's a kind of there are levels of hangover. You know, it feels like the worst hangover ever, right? Um, Which is why Harry, you know, assuming you accepted the name Harry and didn't uh, name yourself Tequila or rename yourself Tequila Sunrise, uh, which I believe is the name that one of uh, one of the wonderful homeless folk uh, give, you know, give you at some point. Or maybe you give it to yourself and then they start calling you that. Uh, in any case, uh yeah, this is why Harry's such a, you know, your protagonist is so, such a good protagonist to have is he's a mess, the place is a mess. And so he does have this kind of representative value in a way, right? Like this place is as messed up as you are. And I think you can play the detective in a lot of different ways, uh, but there are some consistent things. You know, one is that he is the product of lost love. Two is that he is just messed up on drugs and alcohol. And, and even if you sober up, the repercussions of that are there. Um, and three, he happens to be a pretty good detective, actually, right? He happens to have the ability to converse with people in a way that draws out information. Uh, and you can kind of lean into that or not, but you're probably going to end up leaning into that one way or another. Otherwise, you're not going to get very far in the game. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I also think one of the things that surprised me throughout the game is it's also you know it's very much a game about mental health right um and i think there's there's some things that are dealt with in the game that i kind of i've never seen in a game before so you know there are moments where you know he's on the edge right mm -hmm. the character is you know is in a in a mental health crisis at some points right and there are these moments where you can kind of you know, I felt like I've kept him together at some points by saying to the, in these internal monologues, like, I'm not going to think about this right now. You know, I'm going to focus on something else. I'm going to try and, you know, be more positive about my situation. And then you end up being dragged back into it. And you, you kind of, you get this sense of, you know, we've kind of, we've all been there with 
thoughts of anxiety or worrying about things. And the character has that, you know, these kind of moments where you're like, you know, am I going to give in to the anxiety? Am I going to, you know, worry about this or worry about that? And the choices you make don't go in the directions necessarily that you you think they will. And I, I found that to be, you know, I guess there are other games that have mental health in them. And, you know, I guess this is a complicated uh, representation of mental health in various ways, right? Yeah. But I felt that that was something very rare to encounter in a game, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we actually, for our uh, our regular show, uh, the GWG show, we did, I forget if we did one or two episodes on mental health and video games and talked about different aspects, including how video games have represented it, you know, and, and came to the obvious, you know, conclusion <laughs> generally not very well. Uh, but with some exceptions, right? And some also complicated ones. Um, you're seeing more and more uh, game studios uh, involve consultants, uh, hire consultants, mental health consultants um, that are professional therapists or counselors, psychologists. Um, and uh, I mean, you always have to be a little wary because there are also histories of discipline, uh, histories of, you know, incarceration that are tied to mental health professionals that one should remember. Uh, but I think that's a, it's a step in the right direction. I, in fact, I, I know that uh, the studio behind Psychonauts and now doing Psychonauts 2, not rare, but rather not coming to me at the moment. In any case, they for they for Psychonauts 2 are working really closely with mental health professionals. Um, and, it, and it seems like a step in the right direction. And it's funny because I don't get the sense that with that's what this game did and it's very messy, but I do get the sense that they did something interesting with it. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that, so your protagonist, Harry, before you start playing the game, things you find out, because one of the sort of dynamics in this game that's really interesting is that you're not just digging up history about the murder case you're trying to solve, you're also digging up history about yourself, right? Because you're an amnesiac and so you have to figure out who you are, what you are, uh, what you've done, uh, and one of the things you've done is piss off a lot of people and actually kind of emotionally hurt and mess up other people. And one of the ways you've done that is by threatening to commit suicide over and over again. And in fact, one of the reasons you don't have your gun is because you essentially gave it away because you were worried about shooting yourself. And there's something about the way in which the game actually manages to acknowledge not only the gravity of suicide and of suicidal ideation of thinking about committing suicide, but also the gravity or the effects, the impact that has on other people and the way in which like the threat of suicide can also be this kind of like emotional blackmail on other people, right? And that's a complicated, messy thing to get into. And at least from my perspective, I think the game does it pretty well in part because I don't see it giving you any solutions but they also don't see it being overly judgmental. It, like, it calls you out, but it doesn't, it doesn't treat it as something that's like aberrant in, you know, or abnormal in a kind of distinct way, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think we talked about this. I mean, we began to talk about this in the previous episode, right? Of like, you know, I've never really seen uh, the presentation of, the kind of hangover and amnesia and like, what have I done? Who have I upset? But you're right. Like it, the, the, the themes around suicide, you know, politically, interpersonally are very difficult things to represent in a video game. Right. And I think if, if 
if I'd gone into this game and somebody had said, oh, that's one of the things the character's going to go through, I wouldn't have imagined that it would be like this, right? But it fits within, it fits within, yeah, that kind of broader existential crisis that your character goes through and the kind of dread and in, in parts of the game where you're kind of, you know, there's this, uh, at least in a lot of the conversation options that I'm getting at the moment, there's this kind of, you know that there's something really wrong, right? Like, you know, there are a number of really bad things in this character's past and you kind of prod at them at various points. But I've kind of pulled back from a few of them because it's just like, you know, he's been taking speed, right? He's on a bit of a come down in the morning. Like, this is not a good time to be to be pushing some of this stuff. But so you get that, that real sense of like, which, I mean, I guess in a, in a way is reflected with some of the interpersonal tension with other people, but he has this tension with himself, which, yeah, I, th- I think is a, a really impressive thing to have been able to present in a, in a video game, right? Yeah, I mean, and you, I mean, sometimes pushing it can kill you in this game, right? You do have, you have two health bars and one of them is essentially a mental health bar and these are never super high, right? Like you're usually just got a, a few ticks there uh, and you can pursue a conversation that'll kill you. You can also, I mean, one of the most, both moving and disturbing aspects of the game is that you can also go down a memory rabbit hole because of a scent. If I'm remembering correctly, it's apricot. Uh, that will also kill you, right? You can succumb to a level of depression or of grief, uh, of melancholy, essentially, right? Of like a loss that you can't make good on, a loss that you can't get over that will just remove all of your mental health bars and just, you know, you whenever you die in the game, you get like a newspaper headline, you know, cop dies of heart attack or cop dies of incurable sadness or something along those lines. Uh, and I think there is something, I think it's, you know, we've talked a lot about the politics in this game. We've talked a lot about the kind of clever dynamics of the world building and of the conversation structures. But I also think it's just worth highlighting that it can be quite a moving game. It's a humorous game as well, with often some kind of like body, like, you know, locker room humor at times uh, that may or may not be everybody's cup of tea, as it were. But on the other hand, there are these profoundly moving moments, even a character like Kuno, which I won't say too much about, but maybe we can talk about it more in the final episode. But the more you learn about Kuno, the more he's just like a really depressing case of human existence and not because of anything he's done, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think think the thing that is increasingly becoming clear to me about the game is like, it's deeply idiosyncratic um, in ways that it's funny, right? I, there are like some encounters that, you know, we've, we've met people like the people in this game, you know, we've met these kind of, you know, contradictory flawed human beings, right? Um, like maybe we've met a Kuno like uh, character or maybe we, but there's a kind of, these are not like superheroes, right? These are not kind of the usual characters that we come across who are single-handedly doing this or doing that. Like everybody's kind of damaged and difficult in, in one way or another. And it, you know, I, I, I kind of, I think moving is the right way to put it, right? But moving in strange moments or different moments or, or these sorts of things. And, you know, I guess, 
imagine if you were pitching a game like this to to a big publisher um you know i'm going to do these things i'm going to do those things it's kind of it, it this game shouldn't make sense but it does right um yeah you know warren specter has been talking about for years how he wants to make uh a role-playing game or immersive sim that's just about one city block and I'm, I'm afraid it's actually, I mean, it's been done essentially. I mean, it's a little more than a block in this game. It's maybe, but it's maybe the equivalent of two or three blocks at most. And I think it does what Warren Spector wants to do, which is precisely to produce a kind of like very, very dense world, you know, thick with social relations and physical architecture and geography that matters. And, you know, you know, like you were saying, idiosyncratic, I think, is the word. I mean, just having a character, you know, that has this kind of like, almost like puzzle-like conversation that you have to get through, where mostly what he keeps saying is, hardcore, 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 <laughs> you know, which is, of course, one of the ravers. Um, but it's wonderful. It's brilliant. You know, I love being in the tent with the ravers. I love that you can get speed from them. And they're just like, yeah, you know, we had a really bad cold, like an epic cold. Uh, <laughs> so that's why we have all the pseudo-Fedrin uh, in our tent. Um, and even then, right? Like, in case you were too sympathetic towards them, it's worth noting that they're also like, the one guy's leaving his girlfriend out of the cold uh, so they can be part of his boys club because there's not enough room in the tent, you know? And she's sitting there recording ice cracking. Yeah, I mean, as, you know, I kind of, joked with you a little bit about this before the show but as a kind of sort of an ethnographer um it feels like the whole game is full of what i consider to be like the best or not the best the most interesting ethnographic insights about the complicated nature of people right that some of the things that are included in the game are like they're not relevant to the story or the mission you know there's like so much additional detail in various points that you know if you were drawing up a kind of plan to make a fun engaging game these would not be the things that you're like we really need to include this kind of bizarre subplot and idiosyncratic thing about someone but yet the inclusion of all those things is what builds a living breathing sense of a world right but you know kind of as an ethnographer yeah as a some yeah itinerant ethnographer or whatever you get a sense that you've visited Revishol, right you know you've gone you've had a, a beer in that weird hotel that's you know does the awkward karaoke and you know has all these kind of weird features to it you know you 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 feel in a way that with many games and yeah maybe i will find another example to bash than, than cyberpunk but you don't feel like you visited that world right yeah you feel like you've shot your way through it whereas this You've kind of got stuck there. You're waiting for a bus. You, are you going to be able to get out of it? You kind of get this sense that you've you've been there, right? Yeah, uh, in a way you, that. The, yeah, so, and the flip side of that too, right, is that. I mean, I think we're both at points in the game where we're a little. I don't. I don't know if we're lost exactly, but you get that moment of like narrative stasis where you're kind of like, okay, what do I do next? Um, and yet you can still kind of ping from one character to another, and eventually you'll get somewhere. But at least for me, I, I you know, and I, I'd be curious what you think, Jamie, but it's still enjoyable, right? It's like still, because there are all those idiosyncratic details, because 
you get to sense that you've been there, that you're visiting a new place. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, you know, as I uh, get older, you get like less and less time to play video games, right? Um, this is, of course, the kind of, you know, again, another truism for me in the, in the podcast, right? But like, you know, you don't get much time to play video games. And there are, you know, I I can't remember if I mentioned this in the first podcast, but I have like a bit of a destiny habit and occasionally go back to destiny because I find it, you know, uh, incredibly slickly made game that can trick you into wanting to play more and has all these feedback loops that really kind of push you to, to come back for the next season and see what's changed and so on. And it, you know, I, I feel like it is a habit, right? You know, I have to kick it at various points. Whereas this feels like a totally different experience, right? I'm like, oh, I want to play a little bit longer just to poke around and figure out a bit more of this world. But it, it doesn't make it easy for you, right? Like I was playing last night, you know, trying to figure out what I should do next before, before we had a chat about it. And I was just wandering around thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing. And actually that was really nice, you know? There's some friction here, right? Like this is a game in which you have a character who, you know, at first it seems like their sole role is to tell you as a protagonist to go fuck yourself. Uh, and in a normal game, right, you would eventually have a moment where you could defeat that character, uh, probably with some kind of automatic weapon or at least a sword. Uh, and that's not what happens in this game, right? Instead, it's, I think, a flag right away. I mean, heck, one of the first characters you meet is the person that runs the inn uh, or that runs the hotel. And he hates you too because you've trashed your room. Probably has good reason, I guess. Uh, but it's a game in which there's some friction. You're not necessarily likable. And yet there are pleasures to be found and very specific pleasures, including for your protagonist, I would say, right? Um, yeah, and I guess I kind of wonder, you know, of course, when a game like this has been so successful, uh, which, you know, it has been incredibly successful, people look at the game and will think, what was it about this game that made it successful? And how do we replicate that and make money, right? And I kind of wonder, I wonder what the follow-on, the subsequent games that have been inspired by this will take from it. Um, and I think that's right. a really complicated question, right? Because idiosyncratic, you know an idiosyncratic game is by its nature idiosyncratic right like you can't you know you can't pull out one feature from this and be like it's the having that character tell you to fuck off and then never being nice to you at all and having to return to them and feeling embarrassed each time and so on like you can't isolate that as like a core gameplay mechanic that you can then use in another setting right it's like i kind of wonder part of me thinks it would be fantastic to have more games like this these kind of this kind of thing but also part of me has no idea what that means yeah like what does it mean to have another you know is it the deeper ethnographic contradictory storytelling i'd like more of that but i could also imagine that you know an exec sits down and goes i want a disco elysium like like what on earth in what like way does capital mangle that idea into some kind of horrible product right I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I think the things that are most similar to this, I'm thinking of the recent sort of resurgence of computer role-playing, isometric computer role-playing games specifically, uh, the Divinity Original Sins, uh, 
the uh, stuff that Obsidian's been making, things like that. Uh, you know, a lot of times they've been kickstarted, right? And like, there's a there's a reason for that because how do you how exactly do you pitch these things? And the game that comes to mind, which I believe was also kickstarted, uh, that's maybe most similar to this game is Tides of Numenera, which is sort of like a spiritual successor to Planescape Torment. Um, and that, I think this game's even more like Tides of Numenera than Planescape Torment, in part because in Tides of Numenera, I think you can mostly get by in the game without combat. Um, you could do almost maybe like one or two combat encounters or something and mostly use conversation. But even that game's not quite the same kind of dense, weird place that this one is. It's weirder in some respects, but not weirder in others. But uh, and I think we did talk about this in the last episode. But you know, this brings to mind again the Fallout series, right? Um, you know, as a kid, I played a lot of Fallout One, Fallout Two. You know, I I think these have, they're not quite. You know, they're not. You know, there are obviously differences to to Disco Elysium, right? But there is that sense of a kind of contradictory world that is damaged and has damaged people in it and strange things that are you know that you can explore and, and go through and then you look at the progression of that series mm-hmm. um you know and i think you know i think new vegas is an interesting game uh it's very very different to one and two right but there are some interesting bits in it and then you look at fallout what's the online 76 76 yeah and you know look at how like you know, the game had to become 3D because that's what people want, you know, then it had to, you know, not have such complicated theme, you know, it becomes much more kind of black and white and, you know, it's about, you know, I I think, you know, even that you can fire a nuclear bomb in one of them just feels totally ridiculous, right? Like, it's kind of for the whole game is, you know, about not doing that, right? Um, Nominally critical. Exactly, right? Um, But it kind of makes me wonder, you know, I mean, I think the video games industry is constantly one of, you know, these kind of radical experiments, often, you know, hacking existing things or trying things differently. And then that being co-opted by capital as seeing the new thing that you can make money out of. So I'm not kind of saying, you know, whether anything that comes after Disco Elysium, because capital will will co-opt it and ruin it. But it does kind of make me wonder about what, you know, this feels like a reaction to other games in some ways, right? You know, there is a yeah. it, to shift away from other modes of the season passes and the, the you know, the glitz and and, and shooting, uh, essentially. But like, what effect will it have on the industry more widely, right? That's a good question. I think that's a good question to end on since we've we've gone for about an hour and a half. Uh, we will in the next episode we'll wrap up the game. We'll talk about the ending. We'll you know, tie up or try to tie up any loose threads. Thanks for being with us, Jamie. And thanks for listening, folks.